Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, Lesotho to hold general elections in three months, UN Secretary General visits famine hits Somalia, and Zimbabwean government urged to release two journalists. In economics news, Nigeria expects return to strong growth under recovery plan, and in sports news, Guinea's Almami Kamara elected to FIFA Council. And first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. South Africa has started the process to revoke its intention to withdraw from the International Court in a diplomatic communication to the United Nations Secretary General's Office. The UN has yet to confirm receipt of the note, but the South African mission has confirmed the move. Sharon Bryce-Peace reports. The note to the Secretary-General comes after a High Court ruling last month that invalidated the notification of withdrawal submitted to the UN chief last October. The High Court ruling found that any move to withdraw from the Rome Statute that governs the International Criminal Court must be on the basis of the expressed authority of the Constitution, which requires parliamentary approval. The letter submitted by International Relations Minister Maite Nguana Mashabane triggered a one-year period of withdrawal that has now been invalidated on the grounds that she did not have the authority to submit the letter without legislative consent. Parliament's Justice Committee has already begun considering the draft repeal legislation that once approved would allow anew a process of withdrawal from the Rome Statute. Libya's Eastern Parliament has voted to withdraw its support for a United Nations peace deal and government of national accord. The decision comes as Libya's rival power centers are sliding closer to open conflict, with breakaway militias backed by Western Libyan factions seizing oil terminals from the East's leader Khalif Haftar, where forces have vowed to take them back. The Tobruk-based internationally recognized House of Representatives says the government of national accord is not legitimate anymore, as well as its presidential council and anything to do with the entity. The United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres says the international community has a moral duty to provide humanitarian assistance to Somalia to avert a humanitarian catastrophe. He's met with the Somali President Mohamed Abdullahi in Mogadishu. Half of the country's population is in need of humanitarian assistance and aid agencies say it's at risk of famine. More than 250,000 people died in the 2011 famine. Guterres says the focus for aid should shift to Somalia before it's too late. It's impossible to describe in world world. It's the suffering of people. Every single person we have seen is a, a personal story of tremendous suffering. Support to enhance the security 
uh, in this country. AMISOM, the African Union force we have seen, is under-equipped, uh, struggling with lack of resources. Uh, we need the national army in Somalia and the national police force able to guarantee the security of the country. So in all these fronts, humanitarian aid, uh, development, resilience of the country and security, the international community must invest. Because investing in Somalia, we are investing in our own security everywhere in the at least three people have died and hundreds of others have been displaced after Cyclone in Nauru slammed into Madagascar. The National Disaster Management Agency, the BNGRC, in a preliminary toll says 468 people have been displaced in the northeastern district of Marwan Tsetra. Videos on social media have shown flattened trees, flooded roads and corrugated sheeting that had been ripped from roofs. And now made landfall in the northeast of Madagascar with winds gusting up to 290 kilometers per hour. And finally, lawyers and human rights campaigners have launched an initiative for African whistleblowers in Senegal aimed at providing a secure means of exposing wrongdoing on the continent. The platform for the protection of whistleblowers in Africa will provide guidance from legal experts, secure submission of information and a hotline for potential informants. The initiative is the brainchild of Spanish lawyer Baltazar Gazon along with French lawyer William Bodon and the Senegalese human rights advocate Eloine Tenet. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Hello, this month the African Union will be hosting its inaugural African Economic Platform in the Mauritian capital of Port Louis. The summit will take place from the 20th to the 22nd of this month. This will be a forum for frank engagements between African heads of state, business leaders and academics on Africa's future. Furthermore, it will explore opportunities for the implementation of the AU Agenda 2063. Join Channel Africa Radio as we bring you unfold events in Mauritius from the 20th to the 22nd of this month. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you. And it's 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Wednesday, March the 8th, the 67th day of 2017 with 298 days left in the year. The United Nations says humanitarian crisis in Nigeria's northeast may linger if it is not tackled within the next 18 months. The UN Secretary Council stated this during their visit to Nigeria and is asking the international community and the Nigerian government to redouble their efforts. The team went through communities affected by the Boko Haram insurgency and the camps housing internally displaced people in the city of Maiduguri, which has witnessed a series of attacks by suicide bombers in recent times. Collins Atuhengbe reports. 
The visit could not have come at a better time than now when the military is denying reports of extrajudicial killings in the northeast by Amnesty International. The team went through the affected communities and the camps housing internally displaced persons, particularly the city of Maiduguri, which has witnessed a series of attacks by suicide bombers in recent times. Part of the purpose of the visit by the United Nations Security Council's team is to see and evaluate the situation around the war zone assess the living condition at the IDP camp, as well as hold dialogue with the Nigerian authorities on its efforts to bring the activities of Boko Haram to an end in the affected communities. Briefing journalists after a closed-door meeting between Nigeria's acting president, Yemi Oshibajo, and the UN team, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Geoffrey Onyama, said the team saw for itself the enormity of the job that is required to restore normalcy in Nigeria's northeastern border. They saw the calamitous humanitarian crisis there and um, and they saw how we're engaging with that. Uh, over two billion dollars of this government, you know, is uh, is investing in that. You know, we had this um, international donor conference in Oslo and um, of course almost 700 million dollars has been made available uh, to us already and, uh, and I think that this kind of visit will help us to raise even more uh, money for the humanitarian challenges. Considering the evidence at the disposal of the team after the tour of the area, the British envoy to the United Nations, Matthew Rycroft, who led the UN team on the mission, said why the decision on the follow-up action rests or on the authorities of the world body, member nations of the Security Council will confer with each other to see what further assistance they may render. We will also uh, be working with our Security Council colleagues on other aspects of follow-up and we'll be talking privately both to Amina Mohammed and to the UN Secretary General about what more the United Nations itself could be doing in this area. It is not for us as individual members of the Security Council mm-hmm. to say what that should be, mm-hmm. uh, but we'll be going back with our recommendations and our own conclusions. And finally, will each of us be talking to our own capitals, our own governments, about what uh, we are currently doing and whether there is a need to do any more. To give vent to the desired plan for restoration of normalcy in the war-torn zone, Geoffrey Onyama said there were steps through training and skill acquisition to institutionalize virtues of human rights in the Nigerian army, particularly those who are in the field tackling insurgents. The Vice President, I think, made that point. Uh, the steps that were being taken um, by our military in uh, institutionalizing um, human rights, um, you know, a culture within the military. Along with that, Ibrahim Idris, Inspector General of Nigerian Police, on whose shoulder the first contact with people rests in peacetime, says the training will afford his men knowledge which they will in turn pass to their fellows in a train-the-trainer form. This is the train-the-trainer's course. After this course, we are now deploying this officers in the northeast to pass this course to our colleagues who are DPOs, who are area commanders in the field there in Yobi, Bono and Adamawa streets. It is expected that the visit of the UN team to the war zone will help to correct some of the uncomplimentary impressions which some human rights organs have created in the minds of the public about the conduct of the Nigerian soldiers in the fight to sweep the feet of insurgents out of Nigeria's soil. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Atohengbe for Channel Africa News. 
United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, says 75% of Nigerian refugees fleeing Boko Haram extractions to Cameroon want to return home. Cameroon, Nigeria and the Refugee Agency have signed a tripartite agreement for their voluntary repatriation, dismissing rumours that the refugees were being forced back. Mogi Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. According to the UNHCR, more than three-quarters of the 100,000 Nigerian refugees in northern Cameroon want to return home amid an improving security situation. A study conducted by the refugee agency at Cameroon's Minawawo camp showed that those who want to return are still concerned about conditions in their towns and villages of origin. And while 45% of them wish to return home immediately, 38% want to wait and see how the security situation evolves. Abdul Rahman Bello Dambazia, Nigerian Minister of Interior, says his country has tackled all security concerns and the refugees will be welcomed back home. First, we want to ensure that uh, the rights and dignity of refugees are protected. Secondly, it is voluntary from where they are back to their communities. Thirdly, the Nigerian government has been making all efforts to ensure that uh, those communities that have been taken over by the military are well protected. As a matter of fact, it's an aspect of what we term winning the peace. After the military has won the war, then the second part, which is even more difficult, is to win the peace. The winning the peace is part of this process we've started. The communities, some of them have been destroyed. Their homes, their schools, their hospitals, their markets, their livelihood completely destroyed. So there is need to rebuild that. UNHCR stresses that all returns should be voluntary and that people should not be sent back to areas of insecurity and widespread destruction where their lives would be more difficult and fraught with dangers. They are also urging the government of Cameroon to keep its doors open to people fleeing conflict. Cameroon's Minister of Territorial Administration and Decentralization, René Emmanuel Sadi, has promised to take care of those fleeing the conflicts, dismissing claims that Cameroon was forcing them out. C'est un euh, instrument que nous négocions depuis euh, aujourd'hui un bon bout de temps. He says reconstruction programs, aid packages, livelihood projects and deployment of the armed forces to ensure security should be a priority. He says the refugees may suffer humanitarian crisis if the international community fails to come in and help. Notamment ceux qui le souhaiteront vont rentrer chez eux. Alors cet accord fixe les obligations des différentes parties. Over the past year, the governments of Nigeria and Cameroon have pushed back Boko Haram insurgents in northeast Nigeria and northern Cameroon, bringing greater security in some areas. But the insurgency remains a major threat to peace in the region, according to the United Nations. Minister Abdul Rahman Bello Dambazia is, however, assuring. We also are showing our concern that these are 
human beings that need to be taken care of. They are victims of circumstances. So it's not as if by signing this agreement tomorrow they are moving, leaving the refugee camp. No, that is not the case. This is an effort that fortunately even the international community is involved. There's a lot of resources involved in you know, resettling, reconstruction and so on and so forth. The conflict has forced more than 200,000 people to flee to Cameroon, Chad and Niger following attacks on their villages in Nigeria's Borno, Adamawa and Yobe states. The conflict has since 2014 spilled over into Cameroon, where some 170,000 Cameroonians are internally displaced in the north. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. Let's go back in time to today in 1957. Ghana was admitted to the United Nations just two days after it achieved independence from Britain. That was today in history in the year 1957. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. A city of Johannesburg, Mayor Herman Mashaba has accused the South African government of not supporting his initiatives aimed at addressing the challenge of undocumented migrants in the city. Mashaba was speaking during a meeting with Nigerian Consular General Godwin Adama in Johannesburg. The meeting was aimed at discussing challenges faced by the Nigerian nationals in the city, including recent xenophobic attacks. Mashaba has been under fire for his comments on crime and foreign immigrants, which ha- some have blamed for sparking the attacks on foreign nationals. Amos Pajo has more. says his statement has been misunderstood. He says his comments were never directed at Nigerian nationals, but rather all illegal foreign nationals, including some from outside the continent. Mashaba says numerous attempts to reach out to national government for intervention on undocumented migrants have been unsuccessful. Beginning of the year, as soon as I got to, back to the office, I immediately dropped and made a letter to the minister re- reminding him of our commitment to meet by end of January. And he gave me a, a date of the 22nd of uh, January, I think, to be there. On the morning of the meeting, unfortunately, received a, uh, my office received a call, uh, the message from his office of the cancellation of the meeting. And I immediately wrote a letter to him to say, Minister, this matter is very urgent. Please ensure that we reschedule as a matter of agency. It's not a matter that uh, we can leave to chance. It's got massive implications for this country. Since then, I've written four letters to the minister requesting that we get together. 
we deal with this matter of the rule of law in, in the country. He is the one responsible for immigration legislation in this country. It's not the competency of me as an executive mayor of the city of Johannesburg. But however, I need help because how am I expected to provide services to our people when I'm not sure how many people are in the city? How do you expect our law enforcement agencies to carry out their responsibility when they're sitting with so many people with no documentation? During the meeting with the Nigerian Consular General Godwin Adama, authorities mapped out a way forward to address xenophobia within the city of Johannesburg. Interventions include exploring ways to enhance the city's migrant help desk to assist migrant communities to integrate into society, as well as advancing public awareness against xenophobia in all its forms. Mashaba says plans are afoot to engage other diplomatic missions on the issue. South Africa is not just really facing immigration from Africans. South Africa is facing immigration challenges from people all over the world. Why then only single out Africans to be the only ones as victims? I find it really very sad. I'm committing, actually, uh, the Excellency gave me a good suggestion which I will uh, uh, implement this afternoon. I'd like to set up a meeting, a briefing session of all the embassies. I'm going to call them for a a briefing session so that they understand the position of the city of Johannesburg. Nigerian Consular General Godwin Adama has has lauded Mashaba's openness towards the discussions, saying he is looking forward to the implementation of their agreements. We are going to set ahead in a more fruitful relationship and nothing will be able to come against it again in the future. We are moving ahead And I believe that we will not have the ugly situation that we had before again because we have all come to the understanding that no irritant will be able to create uh, situations that will damage the fruitful relationship that we have between the two countries. Civil society group Nigerian Union of South Africa was also part of the discussion. Its president, Ikechukwe Anyeke, has called for joint efforts in fighting criminality in communities instead of blaming foreign nationals as it was the case in the recent xenophobic attacks in Pretoria West. There are some Nigerians that are, are involved in crime, just like citizens of every other country that is in South Africa, including citizens of South Africa themselves. Our position is that the law-abiding citizens of all countries, including Nigeria, should join hand to fight crime. Not South Africans saying that Nigerians are criminals or Nigerians saying that South Africans are criminals. Because the criminals of the, the criminals of different countries, they work together, actually. Mashaba has vowed to ensure that the Department of Home Affairs attend to the issue of undocumented migrants in the city. But at the same time, Home Affairs spokesperson Maitlome Chuetem defended his department, saying the challenge of undocumented migrants is a national issue. He says the minister has been unable to meet Mashaba due to other pressing commitments. I'm Amos Power in Johannesburg. General Antonio Guterres has told rich countries to do more to avert a looming famine in Somalia. During a one-day visit to Somalia, Guterres said it is in the interest of global security for the international community to step in now and assist at least 6.2 million people who are in need of humanitarian aid. Failure of the 2016 rains in much of the country has left millions without food, water and most of the livestock has been decimated. Sarah money has more.
at the Lebanon settlement for internally displaced persons in Bendoa, one of the areas worst affected by the ongoing drought in Somalia, we meet Mohamed Daoud Mohamed. Here he shares a meal of sorghum paste with his family. It is the only meal that Dawood's family has left inside their makeshift tent. Dawood is among the latest to arrive in the two-week-old camp that is now home to 700 people. If they hear that the president and the, the, the international community have come, they think that today is their best day. He is also among 6.2 million Somalis who are in dire need of food aid. The situation in Somalia is desperate. The Horn of African nation is on the brink of a famine, according to aid agencies working in the country. Antonio Guterres, the United Nations Secretary General. So we are not appealing to generosity. We are appealing to people to be intelligent enough to understand that to let countries like Somalia perish and to let the people, like the Somali people, suffer the dramatic impact of the combination of drought, conflict and disease is a danger for everybody. There are fears that the situation could get worse than the 2011 famine when more than a quarter million people died, half of them children. To avert a humanitarian catastrophe, Guterres visited some of the areas worst affected by the drought, making a desperate appeal to the international community to seize the available window of opportunity before it is too late. There is a chance to avoid the worst. There is a chance to avoid in Somalia a situation similar like the one we had in 2011. The UN has made a plea for $825 million to assist those in desperate need of aid, including more than 360,000 severely malnourished children. The drought is a first major test for the country's new president, Mohamed Abdullahi Farmajo. Uh, my uh, first priority is to uh, address this uh, drought crisis, which definitely may produce a famine uh, in, in the coming months. Uh, we know that many animals have uh, died and of course people will follow. Um, my main priority is to make appeal to the international community to help us with, uh, with this crisis. The Somali government has already declared the drought a national disaster. Sarah Kebani, Baidoa, Somalia. Lesotho will hold another general election in three months after two snap elections in 2012 and 2015. The country's King Lutia III says he accepted the Prime Minister's advice to dissolve Parliament and hold elections in the interest of unity and to avoid a constitutional crisis. This after the Prime Minister lost a vote of no confidence last Wednesday. The opposition intends to challenge the dissolution. Ntakwanangadani reports from Maseru. After a vigorous debate on whether or not the advice of the Prime Minister is binding on the King, the much-awaited decision from Lesotho's King Litsia III finally came through on Tuesday. Deputy Prime Minister Mutetwa Missing. This morning, His Majesty has accepted the advice from the Right Honourable the Prime Minister to dissolve the Ninth Parliament. Then this means that after the dissolution, the Constitution provides for the holding of elections within 90 days after the dissolution of parliament. And the electoral law also makes a condition that within four days 
after the dissolution, the polling day should be proclaimed. The ordinary term of office is five years, and this means Lesotho will go to elections three years before that time. The 2015 elections were held three years early after the 2012 poll in an attempt to restore stability. The opposition wanted to take over in parliament, saying it was done in 1997 and in 2012. They attempted to invoke the powers of another statutory body, the Council of State, to prevent this dissolution. Obasuto Convention leader Tom Tabani. He says, please, King, I'm saying this with a sore heart. You can't listen to someone that we toppled in Parliament. Alliance of Democrats leader, Munyane Muleleki. He says they wrote to His Majesty the King requesting him to convene the Council of State because only it can advise him on the way forward. He says even the Council of State can convene its own meeting empowered by the Constitution. He says, how can a person who was elected and toppled by Parliament advise His Majesty the King? But a response from the Office of the King's Senior Private Secretary clarifies his position and in part reads as follows. His Majesty decided in the interest of national unity and to avoid constitutional crisis to accede to the advice of the Prime Minister for dissolution of Parliament in preparation for holding of general elections. On further reflection, His Majesty deemed it not prudent to convene the Council of State as you had requested. The opposition hoped to make its last move in Parliament, but the Speaker had already effected the legal notice. Instead, the clerk of the National Assembly met them to read it. Basutu National Party leader, Tisile Masiribani. We are surprised because we are supposed to convene today, but the clerk came in and made an announcement that uh, the Speaker of Parliament has received a gazette that shows that there is dissolution of parliament. I think we, we, we fully understand after being briefed by our legal uh, advisers that there is a case on board and we are preparing to challenge it at the Constitutional Court of the suit. Well, I, I, I read the, the gazette. The, 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 the person that advised the, the, His Majesty is uh, the Prime Minister of Lesotho. But we are intending to focus on the Attorney General, who is the main person who is behind of protecting the constitution of Lesotho. The government and its allies say they are ready for elections. The opposition too says it is confident it has support, but believes spending another 200 million rand in a space of two years is not in the best interest of the country. It is now up to the Independent Electoral Commission to declare its readiness. in Maseru, Lesotho. Give us your feedback and your views on Lesotho's elections, which will be taking place in the next 90 days. This is the third such election in 
five years. 2012 was the first, 2015 was the second, and now it's 2017 where they will be holding elections in the next three, within the next three months. Do you think they will be able to do that? And financially, will Lesotho be able to withstand these elections? Give us your views and your thoughts on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa 1 or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. It's 8.31 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, South Africa has started the process to revoke its intention to withdraw from the International Criminal Court. The Kenyan government has ordered striking doctors to resume work and announced it has withdrawn a 50% pay increment after talks to resolve the strike failed. And the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the international community has a moral duty to provide humanitarian assistance to Somalia to avert a humanitarian catastrophe. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And let's go back in time to today in 1965. The United States landed its first combat troops in South Vietnam as 3,500 Marines arrived to defend the U.S. air base at Da Nang. That was Today in History in 1965. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The Zimbabwean government has been urged to drop charges against two newspaper journalists who were arrested last Friday for writing a story about President Robert Mugabe's health. Local newspaper Newsday published a story alleging that President Mugabe had flown to Singapore for a post-date cancer medical review. Simon Michema reports from Harare. At 93, President Robert Mugabe says his feet is fiddle and still vying to stand for the 2018 polls, but sources within his own camp say the aged leader is now frail due to prostate cancer. Mugabe now has become more concerned of his health such that he is believed to be visiting his family doctors in Singapore at the expense of taxpayers. The nanogenarian and oldest serving president in the world appears to be shunning hospitals in his own country affected by drug shortages and doctor strikes attracting so much media attention. Of late, Mugabe has frequented Singapore hospitals with alleged eye cataract, but media sources say he has prostate cancer. Richard Chidza and Wisdom Muzungairi wrote a story published on the 2nd of March citing Mugabe's condition had deteriorated when he hurriedly left the country on the 1st of March leading to the journalist's arrest. Lawyer Obey Shava reacted to the call 
for Zimbabwe to drop the charges. The charges emanating from the newspaper article of uh, 2nd of March 2017 in which they are the report is saying that the president, apart from suffering uh, from um, an eye problem that we now all know of as Zimbabweans, there is more to it, uh, it being alleged that he could be suffering from prostate cancer. So it is that portion of the report which did not go down well with the police according to uh, the charge sheet. So the police wanted to know the source where the Newsday and the journalists found that story from and um, in terms of the constitution the the journalists are not obliged to divulge uh, its source they have got the right to treat it with uh, confidentiality and as such they could not divulge it to the police so that is the main basis for the charge Shava added concerned is another statement I'm truly disturbed by these developments uh, first of all, this is not the first time that we have heard a story where it is being alleged that the, st- the president is suffering from uh, prostate cancer. Uh, this issue has been in the public domain for quite some time now, and I'm quite pretty sure that the police is aware of it as well. Now that we are approaching the 2018 general elections and the police is behaving in the manner that it did in arresting the journalists, it becomes worrying. Uh, this is a clear message perhaps being sent to the journalist that um, you should not criticize the president's health. You should not write anything negative against the president. Um, it's a ploy to silence the journalists. They are already anticipating what is likely to come out of the uh, media fraternity in respect of the president's health and how that can negatively impact against the president in the, in the next coming election. Although the journalists have formally been charged, they are yet to appear in court Shava said. We are still waiting to be summoned uh, to appear in court. As I earlier on indicated that we, they were formally charged, they responded to the charges, they are denying the charges, and the main basis for the denial is that um, the piece of legislation under which they are being charged is unconstitutional, a position which we are ready to defend uh, before any court of law. So the police had advised that they are doing further investigations and once they are ready, they would advise us that they are ready for court. But up to date, they are not yet ready. I guess they are still doing the investigations. Um, Most importantly, I believe that the state perhaps is, the police is um, realizing how full it would be to proceed with the charges against the journalists. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. King Litsia III of Lesotho has dissolved parliament and elections will be held within the next 90 days, which is three months' time. In 2012-2015, there were also snap elections in Lesotho. Now, give us your thoughts and your views on these elections coming up. What do you think? Will the Suta be able to hold these elections? And financially, will the economy be able to withstand what is coming? Give us your thoughts and your views on email at info at channelafrica.ca.ca or tweet us at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa 1 or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
It's 8.39 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A new type of mosquito which threatens to spread malaria in South Africa has been discovered. A team of South African scientists from the Witz Research Institute for Malaria who made the discovery says this means South Africa needs to intensify malaria vector control. To find out more on this, Sakina Kamwenda spoke to one of the scientists who super Supervise the research, Professor Maureen Kutsir, Director of the Witz Research Institute for Malaria here in South Africa. First of all, this mosquito was shown to be able to transmit malaria many, many years ago. Um, I think it was around about 1977, um, but that was only in the laboratory. And we never, ever found any of these mosquitoes in the wild actually infected with the parasite until now. Um, and, and here we had a master's student who was working on mosquitoes in Mpumalanga, collaborating with the Department of Health. You had the malaria control program people down there and the NICD here in Sandringham. She was screening mosquitoes for part of her project, and this one came up positive. So we were all very, very surprised. I think the, the implications are that this mosquito doesn't, do what the normal malaria vector mosquitoes do. In other words, it doesn't go inside houses to feed on people. And and our current malaria control interventions are to spray the inside of houses with a long-lasting insecticide. So you spray the walls and the roofs and the insecticide stays there for the duration of the malaria season. But now this mosquito bites outside. And so that kind of protection um, isn't going to impact on this particular mosquito. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's, a, it's a, a little bit worrying. The fact that we've, we've, well, the Department of Health have been screening for mosquitoes, all these mosquitoes for years, you know, and we've never found that infected before. So, so, so when you say they don't, um, uh, you know, uh, bite inside the house, so they're outside, are there specific areas where um, one is more likely to find them? Uh, yes. Um, down in the lower south area, the, the particular mosquito seems to like the um, area around the southern Kruger Park, Malalan, Kamatipuert, that kind of area. It's It's fairly common. When I say fairly common, I'm I'm not talking about as common as your common house mosquito that pesters everybody. And and also remembering that these mosquitoes feed at night. So if you're sitting outside enjoying the company of your friends or having a braai or something, it's possible that you could be bitten by these mosquitoes. Uh, Professor Kutia, uh, has there been any reports of people being infected? Thus far, the, um, as far as I know, the malaria figures have increased in February because of the rains, which is what we expect anyway at this time of the year. Um, it's it's our peak malaria transmission season, so we expect to see the malaria cases going up. But it's very difficult to determine. You know, the Department of Health likes to to separate the malaria cases that are imported. In other words, people coming from Mozambique or from somewhere else where they have contracted the disease and separating that from people that have never traveled anywhere and therefore must have got their malaria um, where they live. And those are called local cases. 
Um, so it will be possible to see whether there's an increase in the local cases as well at, at this time, um, which, again, you know, we expect to see that sort of thing. That was Professor Maureen Kassir, Director of the Witt Research Institute for Malaria, speaking to SAFM Sakina Kamwendo. It's 8.43 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Women in a changing world of work, that's the theme of today's International Women's Day as the United Nations focuses on the role that technological advances can have on women's prospects while lifting the number of women stuck in the low-paid and formal economy who often have no social protections. The focus of this year's observance is a precursor to the to next week's start of the Commission on the Status of Women, where discussion will range from the gender pay gap to unpaid care work, challenges facing women in the informal economy and opportunities created by new technologies. Show and Bryce P sat down with the Executive Director of UN Women and sent us this report. And uh, it was uh, adopted... Pumzile Mlambongmuka wants to tackle two extremes, women who are not equitably represented in the digital revolution and those who find themselves in the informal sector. We are also talking about the women who are at the bottom of the pyramid, the workers who are in the informal sector, who in numbers are just too big to fail. Just in sub-Saharan Africa, 80% of women who work outside the home work in the informal sector. If we do not address those women, we actually could be destabilizing people who represent a buffer between extreme poverty and the ability for countries to manage poverty and inequality. The SDG on achieving women's empowerment and equality by 2030, that's just 13 years away. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. I'm Tabi Solohoku with an economics update. Good morning. Indonesia has been a dependable partner in ensuring South Africa's reconstruction and development. South African President Jacob Zuma is in the capital Indonesia, Jakarta, um, to promote the country as a viable destination for tourists, trade and investments. Zuma and his uh, Indonesian counterpart, Joko Widodo, are expected to sign two bilateral agreements later this Wednesday. South Africa's International Relations Minister Maitin Gonamashabani explains. We have got historic ties with this country. They've been with us during the difficult times. They have remained in good times post-1994. We worked together with them on also resolving issues around the Timor-Leste. Indonesia, like Malaysia and other ASEAN countries have played a very, very important role, but also continue to be dependable partners in development today particularly when we talk of Operation Pakisa and the ocean economy, be it at the many other multiplicity of UN forums, they are with us and we speak with one voice. The Tanzanian unit of telecoms firm Vodacom will start a more than month-long initial public offering this Thursday and expects its shares to start trading in May. The company, a subsidiary of South Africa's Vodacom and the biggest operator in Tanzania, aims to raise $213.45 million by selling 560 million shares. 
It will become the first telecoms firm to launch an IPO under Tanzania's mandatory listing rules. Stanbeck Bank Zambia says that traditional ceremonies have the potential to improve and strengthen the social and cultural fabric of communities, as well as marketing the country's tourism potential. Speaking during the Nwala ceremony in Chipata at the weekend, Stanbeck Public Relations Manager Chanda Katongo said that the bank remained committed to preserving the country's culture and heritage. Katongo says it's for this reason that Stanbeck Zambia donated funds towards the successful hosting of the Nwala ceremony, which is held annually to celebrate the first harvest of the year at Mutunguleni village near Chipata. Nigeria expects the economy to climb out of recession and grow 2.19% this year. The new economic recovery and growth plan 2017-2020 to says gross domestic product is expected to grow an average of 4.62% a year until 2020 and hit 7% that year. Africa's biggest economy is in its first recession in a quarter of a century, brought on by low oil prices, which have slashed government revenues, weakened its currency and caused inflation to rise. Stats SA says although gross domestic product figures show that agricultural sector has recorded an eighth consecutive decline, the sector is likely to improve this year. Stats essay says that due to the improvement in weather conditions, the agricultural sector is likely to record a positive number this year. Morafit Dabane reports. The two sectors are mainly responsible for the disappointing growth numbers. The manufacturing sector and mining sector used to contribute almost a quarter to the country's gross domestic product. However, this number has dwindled over the years. The latest GDP numbers show that the manufacturing sector's contraction in the fourth quarter was due to a decline in the production of motor vehicles as well as transport equipment. The U.S. dollar trades at 12.97 in South Africa, 10.30 in Botswana, 9.69 in Zambia, 8.1 to the British pound, 9.4 to the euro, gold $1,216, platinum $956 an ounce, brand crude $55.65 a barrel. The voice of the African Renaissance. As well as updates up next with Figile Lingwati. This time in our sports update, we begin with the cricket music. Proteas batsman Dean Elgar produced an excellent century and powered South Africa to 229 for four at Stumps has repaired the damage after a stuttering start by the Proteas on the opening day of the first test against New Zealand at the University Oval in Dunedin. Elgar moved to 128 at the close, having faced 262 balls. He hammered 28 fours. Temba will resume with Elgar on 38 on the second day. The duo amassed 81 runs for the fifth wicket of 181 deliveries. Elgar compiled his seventh test century when he pulled a short delivery by Jimmy Nisham with disdain to the mid-wicket boundary to reach three figures of 197 balls 
with 24s. On to football news, South Africa's brittle defence at the CAF Under-20 Africa Cup of Nations will be put to the test against the top-scoring team in the competition, the host Zambia, in tonight's semi-final in Lusaka. Zambia scored 10 goals in their three group stage matches, conceding just two. Given that the South Africans are the second-highest-scoring team at the Under-20 AFCON with nine goals, today's semi-final at the National Hero Stadium, which will house a big crowd supporting the host, could be expected to be a high-scoring affair. Our correspondent, Namuchana Ligezo, reports. There is too much excitement in Zambia. I personally took time not to talk to a lot of soccer fans. A lot of them, really, they told me they are very disappointed in, in the sense that they wanted, uh, they wanted Zambia to play South Africa in the final, not play South Africa in the semi. But uh, above all, they are saying, since the fixture has been decided, there is nothing that they can do. And they are very optimistic that uh, Zambia is going to beat South Africa. Almami Kabele Kamara of Guinea has been elected unopposed to the Council of FIFA a week before African elections for the post were to be held. After both his rivals pulled out hours before FIFA announced the results of background investigations on prospective candidates, Kamara was one of the three candidates for two places in the open category of the African elections, which also have other categories for the continent's various language groups. But both Denny Jordan, president of the South African Football Association, and Shabur Gok Alei of South Sudan withdrew without explanation, leaving a vacancy that will be filled by a supplementary election. The Confederation of African Football and FIFA were notified of the withdrawals just hours before FIFA announced that the 10 candidates in the race had all passed integrity checks. Kamara will now fill one of the seven seats reserved for Africa on the FIFA Council. And in boxing news, U.S. boxer Floyd Mayweather sent a message to mixed martial arts champion Conor McGregor to stop barking and find some bite after months of talk about a crossover fight between the two. Speaking after announcing an IBF World Super Featherweight title bout in London on the 20th of May, between his defending protégé, Genov Kevonta Davis and Britain's Liam Walsh. Mayweather suggested McGregor was all talk. Uh, Conor McGregor is blowing smoke up everybody's ass. He don't really want to fight. If he really want to fight, sign the contract. He keep telling everybody, I'm scared of you, I'm, sc- I'm scared of you. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a contract typed up. I'm going to get a contract typed up tonight. I'm going to sign it and I'm going to fax it over to Conor McGregor and see, see if he's going to sign it. And finally, with cycling, is a heavy fall as four South African road race champion Reynald Janse van Rensbeck out of the prestigious Paris Nice cycle race on stage three. Janse van Rensbeck of Team Dimension Data for Kubega was racing in the peloton when he went to ground, just 30 kilometers from the stage finish. It was confirmed that he would take no further part in the race, which is currently led by Arnaud Dimari of France. The extent of Van Rensburg's injuries are not yet known, but he was able to walk after the incident. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa Lesotho to hold general elections in three months. UN Secretary General visits famine hit Somalia and Zimbabwean government urged to release two journalists. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzora Magadza and Khomuzo Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of our for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Angkor with a song titled Kifela Pilo. I heard that you're coming tomorrow Hair from the girls you used to know Last time I saw you was back in the days in high school.
Oh, 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 oh,